Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to our Anthropology of Fear podcast, COVID-19 edition. This is obviously a really strange and scary time we are living in that is unprecedented for all of us, but it is also an opportunity to examine more closely our multifaceted individual and collective fear reactions in the context of a pandemic. We may never have this lived experience again. We can look at what are people fearing and why? What contributes to people's fears right now and what lessens them, if anything? How will this end and what will life and our fears and anxieties look like on the other side of this? We will be discussing all of this and more in the coming episodes. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, everyone. My name is Kyle Hart. I'm currently in Cleveland, Ohio, and today I'll be taking a look at the current COVID-19 pandemic through an anthropological lens, specifically through our culture's construction of fear of the other. Having experienced the recent public panic that resulted from the COVID-19 outbreak, I've come to believe that it is rooted in our human tendency to fear the outsider or the other. The virus has become to many people the invisible outsider who lurks in the shadows and has been invading our peaceful world. What prompted this podcast was a conversation I had with my dad, Brian Hart. I'll be expanding off some of the points we discussed about the virus's impact on our society's culture of fear. First, it is important to define what I mean when I say the other or the outsider. Even if subconsciously, societies create boundaries to sustain their homogeneous communities. Each culture has their own rules of categorization or of determining what is pure and polluted, what can be let in, and what is kept out. These categories therefore create boundaries, and so things that are on the other side of this divide are deemed the other or the outsider. This social order gives the world meaning, and so things that cross these borders are then perceived as dangerous. While what is pure is known to have social harmony, be coherent, logic, safe, known, and healthy, What is believed to be the other is thought to be dangerous and dirty because of its unknown, ambiguous invasion. We fear the dirty other because they are polluting our pure, safe lives and contaminating our social harmony. Whether that be in invading our gated community, the walls of our household, infecting our healthy bodies, or sneaking into our nation. But where does this fear come from? Evolutionarily, we fear people who do not fit in or who cannot be immediately categorized because they can be seen as a threat to our survival. We are social creatures who are dependent upon social connections to survive and thrive, and so any outsiders or unknown, unpredictable individuals pose as a threat. This is very similar to our society's dealings with the current COVID-19 panic. Right now, One of the biggest fears any of us could have is coming into contact with an individual who has COVID-19 and contracting it ourselves. Being contaminated by this unknown, invisible disease highlights our biggest fears. We can't see the thing invading our lives, we don't know how to best fight it, it won't go away, and it is proven to be extremely dangerous as as there have been almost 4.5 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 today in the world and 300,000 deaths, and these numbers are changing rapidly every single day. Much like the backstory to so many dystopian pandemic movies like 28 Days Later and zombie stories such as The Walking Dead, the outside invader is an invisible germ, an enemy that cannot be seen or heard or even felt. Everyone contaminated becomes an invisible carrier of the deadly virus, which makes us fear everyone we do not know and even those we do, which is why it has become so stressful for us all. 
as forms of precautions to keep this invader out of our lives, we have been under an extended stay-at-home order, confined to the safety of our homes and communities, and told to social distance. We wear masks and gloves when we go out into the real world, as they are our best forms of armor from the unknown enemy. Everyone we encounter could possibly be carrying the disease, and so even our loved ones become a threat to our safety. However, what is even more interesting to look at that is part of the COVID-19 crisis is the concept of the darker other within us all. Around 50% of the population might have the virus or have already been contaminated. So who is to say that you don't already have it or haven't already been exposed to some form of it? It is believed to have entered our country as early as January 2020, so some of us may have unknowingly already been sick and have even recovered from it as it existed within the boundaries of our country for months before lockdown began. Some of us could even be carrying it right now and just be asymptomatic. However, with limited testing, it is hard to fully know. This mirrors the age-old fear that each person has evil or dark thoughts already in them and that the devil is trying to, quote-unquote, fan the flame of sorts. This belief then encourages people to turn to religion as religious rituals are formal, stylized, repetitive patterns of symbolic behavior that are used in an attempt to control an outcome. It is a way to gain power over unknown circumstances and it fulfills our social and psychological needs and questions. Currently, there has been much anxiety provoked by individuals attempting to find meaning in and explain this pandemic. Why is it happening to us and why now? Is it to solve overpopulation? Global warming? Is some higher power trying to teach us a lesson? Who can really say? Religion gives us a way to exercise our fears and our anxieties. Some have even taken to the streets, protesting closed churches, holding signs about how God's love will protect us and how, quote, Jesus is my mask, unquote. So what does this all tell us? It tells us that we are no different than most people of the past. We react as humans in ways that can be considered human nature. We fear threats, we fear outsiders, we fear the evil that we may already have inside us, that may already have contaminated the safety of our homes. There's a lot of uncertainty about the future, about how we will continue, about how the sick will recover, about how and if society will ever return to normal. But something that we have also learned from the past is that we will get through this. It may take time, but it'll come to an end and our lives will continue. Thank you for listening. I'm Kyle Hart. I hope you enjoyed this podcast about the fear of the other and how the current COVID-19 pandemic is a perfect example of this fear. Hello, my name is Daniel Russell. I am a junior at Kenyon College, seeking my major in philosophy and my minor in biology. I am currently in quarantine at my mother's house in Kego Harbor, Michigan, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I want to talk about fear and the media and how it relates to the current COVID-19 pandemic. To start, it would be safe to say that most people in the United States have access to some form of news media, whether that be a phone, TV, or even the news broadcast systems playing off of the newer gas station pumps. At the end of the day, media has a heavy influence on the modern age. Whether the influences are good or bad are up for debate. Media is an outlet which individuals can connect to and interact with to see various aspects of the outside world. Right now, COVID-19 is one of the main focuses of media, 
and the narrative that's being illustrated is one that is creating unnecessary panic within our country. In Sarah Wright Minode's Media and Immoral Panic, she outlines that the media is involved in panic in three different ways. One, amplifying a problem. Two, shaping up a folk devil. And three, setting an agenda. I would like to take a particularly close look at her shaping up a folk devil, though all of these aspects can be seen in the current pandemic. In regards to shaping up a folk devil, Minot illustrates that, quote, nevertheless, the folk devil, in whatever guise it appears in, must come to be seen in negative terms, in a way that is explicit, stereotypical, and sharper than reality. Cohen argues that the media achieves this by constantly making negative references to the said folk devil, which serves to strip away any former positive or neutral connotations they or it may have had. Right now, as we speak, there is at least one news channel that is illustrating a story or statistic regarding COVID-19 that is extremely negative and that is influencing hundreds of thousands of people around the country. This is not to say that COVID-19 is not serious. By all means it is, and I want to stress this. But what I will bring to question is, is the negativity necessary? I interviewed an individual within my household regarding the subject. She gave a very productive answer to this question. When I asked what picture she thought the media was trying to paint, she responded by saying, quote, Most of it is all negative doom and gloom type of standpoints. I don't think that there's any positivity that they're reporting. And anytime someone does try to report something positive, it's followed immediately by negative. So I think that the media got into the drama and excitement of it and stopped thinking about what the people really needed to hear and see, end quote. Our interview covered a lot of larger topics seen frequently in the media, such as race and or racism that we will cover later, the current actions of the government, and even her experience being sick during the pandemic and the fear of her potentially having COVID-19. Throughout the interview, there was a lot less of a sense of sentiment of fear and more of a sentiment of distrust for the media and the government. This is not something that is common, as she later quotes, quote, You know, when people are in a panic, they tend to turn to sources of truth that they feel are truth. So it's possible that they wanted to get more viewers or more people reading their coverage or, you know, so on and so forth. I don't think that there was an informational standpoint. I think it was more feeding off of the fear and the panic, end quote. With this idea in mind, I would like to move to say that another step that the media takes to create panic right now in this current pandemic is part of Minode's amplifying a problem. One example of this comes from NPR News, coincidentally a news outlet that has reported that in Minnesota, they are changing the death certificates of patients who have died of symptoms of pneumonia or any respiratory illness. Any individual who dies from pneumonia or any respiratory illness 
and displays any type of COVID-19 symptom has their cause of death put as COVID-19, whether they actually had it or not. Now, these death toll statistics will be put out to major news outlets who create half of the narrative. It is currently May 14th, around 11 p.m. And looking at the top stories when searching for COVID-19 death tolls on Google, the top stories come from CNN, the New York Post, and the Washington Post. Their news headlines, respectively, are, quote, Coronavirus global death toll passes 300,000 as countries wait in lockdown, end quote. Quote, America's true COVID toll already exceeds 100,000, end quote. Quote, live updates. More than 85,000 people have died from the coronavirus in the United States, end quote. All of these updates were posted within the last 24 to 48 hours, and already there is ambiguity among most, the most relied upon media outlets in the country, and notice that the numbers are large and rounded, which for most of us will look much scarier than specific and actual numbers. And I feel this is done on purpose. Unfortunately, one symptom from this pandemic has been racism, xenophobia in particular. This has to do partly from what the media has reported, more specifically the phrasing that they have used when talking about the virus. During the early stages of COVID-19, many news anchors used the phrase, quote, the Chinese virus. This immediately places blame on one specific group, or in this case, race, just off of one phrase used. When speaking to the interviewee about this, and about racial tensions due to COVID-19, the media was immediately brought back into the conversation as one of the larger influencers. When asked what the primary drivers in American and Asian tensions were, she responded by saying, quote, it was the media coverage that said it came from China. So that's basically where all of this kind of came from. The media covered it and said that this is where it came from. No, I mean, obviously, our president made references to the Chinese virus, so that doesn't help. So, you know, any of those people who are already predisposed to those feelings, obviously, had their, you know, aha moment, or their, oh, see, I told you this was going to happen moment, end quote. I am by no means discounting the severity of COVID-19 nor am I discrediting the work that certain media outlets are putting in to give people accurate and timely information during this difficult time period. However, panic regarding COVID-19, as well as racism and unnecessary violence due to ambiguity and amplification of issues from media outlets, has spread rapidly. And I feel that this is unnecessary and unneeded during this time. I feel that right now, 
people need to come together and not be worried or afraid, but come together and be strong. Today, I will be discussing how social constructs of fear are experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in reference to our understanding of boundaries. For this project, I interviewed three college juniors, all of whom plan to be abroad during the spring 2020 semester. Instead, they're spending the semester under quarantine in their homes. During each of these interviews, we discussed how the virus impacted their semesters and also international travel more generally. I then analyzed these transcripts to determine the role of boundaries in their conceptualizations of COVID-19 as a threat. For some background information, my name is Hannah Haynes, and I'm a junior psychology major with a concentration in environmental studies and minors in anthropology and German. Just like everyone I interviewed, I am currently quarantining at home with my family, so each of these interviews was conducted using Google Meet. Since the pandemic began, I have been really interested in how our perception of boundaries impacts fear. While the virus began in Wuhan, China in December, the United States did not spring into action until February, at which point a travel ban was placed on China. This ban was followed by another in March, this time restricting travelers from most European countries. Later in March, those European countries which were left out of the initial ban, the UK and Ireland, also experienced restricted travel. It took us months to come to terms with the notion that the virus could travel to the US unannounced and without a passport. The borders of the US make us feel safe. And this reminded me a lot of our discussion on gated communities, where we determined that borders lure us into a false sense of security. While all eyes were on Seattle, where we believed that the virus originated in the US in February, we failed to recognize that it was actually already here and had been spreading throughout the population, causing what we believed at the time to be a trend of false negatives on the rapid flu test. My first interview was with a junior economics major who was supposed to be abroad in Germany this spring. She realized the high likelihood of her study abroad program being canceled while working as the leader of the healthcare sector for her college's student investment fund. This role required her to stay up to date on healthcare around the world. So she first took notice of the coronavirus in January, at which point she thought it was nothing to worry about. And here's a quote. And all of a sudden there was this COVID-19 in China and people were talking about there being a recession and how it was going to affect airlines. And at the time, I remember talking at meetings like, oh, it's not a big deal. So that's how the tracking started. And it kind of got more intense as it started spreading to Europe. She later elaborated on how she felt as it spread. And then probably around mid-February, when it started spreading to Italy, I was like, this is going to be a problem. So yeah, I think that's when I started thinking it was going to be serious. When the news of the novel coronavirus in China first broke, she expected that it would stay contained within Wuhan. But even if it managed to spread beyond Wuhan, she expected the physical distance between China and the US would keep us safe, underestimating the level of contagion and globalization. The virus's spread to Italy was a major wake-up call to other Western nations, a distinction based on a socially constructed boundary. As noted during the interview, the months of people sickening in Wuhan did not matter. It took the virus leaping from Asia to Europe for her to realize that COVID-19 could have serious repercussions in the U.S. Before this point, she found it easier to act as though we had nothing to worry about, and this denial of the problem momentarily eased her anxiety until she had no choice but to recognize that the virus was here. My second interview was with the junior slotted to go to Kunming, a city in the Yunnan province in South China, bordering Vietnam. 
When I asked her if she knew what had prompted the, the cancellation of her program in January, she replied, Actually, no, I was really shocked. And the reason I was shocked is because it wasn't in the U.S. We didn't really see things getting bad here. She further explained that the program's cancellation predated the travel advisory. She said, then when it was like a four, I would understand that it would make sense. No, prog no program would wanna be hosting itself because then if something happened, they wouldn't be able to go to the government for help. The government's basically saying, we don't support anyone going to this country. If you go to the country and something happens to you, we won't be covering you. Yeah, I don't think that happened at that point. Not only did she underestimate the virus's ability to spread to the US, but she underestimated the devastation the virus could cause globally. She assumed that a travel advisory would keep us safe and that the absence of a travel advisory meant that there was really no cause for concern. The root cause of this denial is anxiety. As human beings, we like to be in control, to compartmentalize and categorize, but a virus like COVID-19 has no respect for boundaries. She ignored the virus and its potential to wreak havoc on our country because our current reality, a nearly uncontrolled outbreak, was just too anxiety-inducing to imagine. My final interview was with a student whose year-long study abroad program was canceled in March, prompting her return to the US from the UK several months earlier than expected. She explained her thoughts pertaining to the virus were such that, and here's a quote, it hit Italy and they were shutting down Northern Italy. And I was like, it's probably gonna hit the UK, but is it gonna make the jump across the ocean to the US, like into South America and Canada or whatever? Is it gonna make the jump? And then when it hit Washington State in like Seattle, at least that's when I, I was like, LOL, we're screwed. She remarked that people in the UK and even other Americans on her program were acting as, as if nothing was wrong up to that point. She said, it was like once it hit Washington, like once it hit the US, at least that's when I think people in our program started paying attention. Even though people had already began paying attention before she flew back to the US, she noted that she was underwhelmed with the protocol for allowing people back into the country. Here she explained her interaction with the TSA agent. He just asked me if I had been to any of those countries in the past two weeks. I said, no. He asked me why I was coming home. I said, study abroad. And that was it. Yeah, they didn't take my temperature or anything. I was like shook, but maybe it's because I wasn't coming from one of those countries listed. This interview underscores the flaws in our conceptualizations of the virus caused by denial. Even though we live in a global society, we were somehow caught off guard by a virus dispersing across the world. We were surprised when the protection afforded to us by our coastal borders was foiled by airplanes. Instead, we convinced ourselves that by taking inventory of people's travel history, we could keep safe, forgetting that all physical boundaries are permeable and that a virus will not respect our socially constructed boundaries. As, a, as each of these interviews illustrates, boundaries make us feel safe, but in reality, they're luring us into a false sense of security and heightening our anxiety of the things we try to keep out, things such as pandemics. We deal with this anxiety through avoidance, which temporarily provides us with relief. In the case of COVID-19, avoidance equated denying the threat, denying that a virus could ever, ever travel from Wuhan, China to the United States. First, we were dependent on socially constructed borders, which distinguished Wuhan from neighboring cities and the Eastern world from the Western world to contain the virus. Then we assume that our physical borders, which are permeated by travelers each and every day would defend us. While avoidance provides relief from anxiety in the moment, it also increases our anxiety of dealing with things in the future. 
So when we learned that our boundaries did not function as we expected and we had a global pandemic on our hands, we were even more anxious. COVID-19 is not the first global pandemic and it will not be the last. In order to prepare for the future, we need to stop depending so heavily on socially constructed boundaries and physical boundaries to protect us. We cannot continue to ignore what lies outside our borders until we are forced to confront our anxieties, but we need to develop a strategy that recognizes threats with enough time to prepare for them. Hi everyone. Welcome to another segment of our study on the anthropology of fear during the COVID-19 pandemic. The goal of this project is to study how social constructs influence the fears experienced at this time. My name is Paola Liendo. I'm a senior English major and anthropology minor from Laredo, Texas, and over the next few minutes, I'll be talking to you about how fear of illness relates to class inequality. I was on campus during spring break when school started shutting down, so I've been rooted in Gambier, Ohio for the last few months rather than at home with my family. To set the scene, Gambier physically is still the place we all remember. It's still the place I've loved these last four years, but it is also very different. The entire campus is emptier, it's quieter, there's an eerie stillness when you walk around that can make being here pretty lonely. And so, unlike many of my classmates, I interviewed a fellow Kenyan student, Kristen Edgeworth, class of 2020. This is because we have both been on campus for the remainder of the spring semester. We're two of maybe 80 or 90 students left, most of them international students, and she's the closest thing I have to a housemate. As a result of this, I thought it would be interesting to interview her, since she hasn't gone home because of financial instability. This, ultimately, is how we got to talking about class inequality and fear. We spoke a lot about class and regional differences, primarily. From the beginning, Kristen references the coronavirus as a phenomenon that felt distant from her for a long time. Because of this, she maintains a distinct calm throughout the interview that borders on astonishing. There haven't been many cases here in Gambier, though, so her primary concerns are with her immunocompromised parents in the South. Kristen is from Chattanooga, Tennessee, so she makes a lot of references to the quote-unquote South. Each time she mentions it, that it's been bad at handling our present situation, that the South is failing to provide proper resources, she seems to be using that phrase as a placeholder for the U.S. Southern government. Throughout our conversation, she is clearly aware of race and class divides. She is not trying to place blame necessarily on the people of the region, nor on anyone from marginalized communities. Instead, she seems to see some sort of failure and inadequacy with how U.S. Southern government bodies are handling the crisis at hand. One really interesting aspect of our interview for me is that she spent a lot of time talking about how she stays in control of her fears. She explains that she is someone who likes to know things, to stay informed, to stay busy. She decreases her anxiety about our present reality by moving from one project to the next. She likes to stay on top of what she can control. What interests me is that all of her modes of control center around productivity. At one point, she goes as far as to say that she is preoccupied with, you know, understandable fears. She is a senior. She has to navigate this period of transition during a pandemic. But beyond these fears, beyond the fright of not achieving her goals on time, etc., the question that seems to haunt her most is this one. If these things that I am already thinking about get pushed back or delayed or canceled or postponed, how do I sit still in the meantime? That is a direct quote from her. She is uncomfortable at every point in the interview 
with the idea of life standing still, even for a moment. She is, thankfully, really introspective about her fears, and seems to know that her fears about productivity are culturally bound. At one point, she slips and calls capitalism the monster in the room, telling us that our self-worth is dependent upon our productivity. So she makes it very, very clear that her focus on work is at least partially tied to her belief in how it ties to her humanity, to her self-worth, or at least how others perceive it. In addition, in speaking about her parents who likely had COVID-19, she focuses a lot on saying that they're not good at self-advocacy. She wishes that there were better resources available for them to know whether or not they've definitively had the disease so that they can use the information to better their lives going forward. On one hand, this reflects something of her fear being so distanced from her parents and from the world at large. She is thinking pretty logically about how knowledge would decrease fear in the future. It would be one thing to know that her parents had the virus, that is a kind of fear in itself, but she seems to estimate that the fear is much greater in the not knowing. I think she is implicitly drawing upon a key component of anthropological studies of fear, risk perception. She worries that her parents are likely to misgauge how cautious they should be without all the necessary information. And her concerns aren't unfounded. In a recent study on fears of illness progression and the production of risk, anthropologist Jen Palaipa found that social inequalities between patients and health providers can render the former powerless to voice their health concerns for fear that providers will not understand or will dismiss their fears. In such cases, clinical encounters carry both a social risk of exacerbating feelings of marginality and an associated physical risk that one's illness will be inadequately treated or even mistreated. Social vulnerability may be a contributor to heightened risk of illness progression or complications in and of itself, in some cases resulting in patient risk reduction strategies that explicitly involve avoiding medical treatment. The divide that wealth inequality causes in healthcare treatment will likely only grow as studies estimate that poverty will significantly increase as a result of COVID-19 and that it is the impoverished who are most likely to suffer during this, this pandemic. What Kristen's interview also demonstrates is just how deeply her mistrust of her city and state government goes. She emphasizes over and over again self-reliance and self-advocacy because she believes that there are not systems in place to actually advocate for her or her loved ones. Even as Kristen tells me of all the ways in which it saddens her that community ties will likely not be the same after the pandemic, American self-reliance rears its head again. She seems to want to help her communities for sure, but she also carries some armor around herself and her language when it comes to fearing the alternative if she and her folks aren't self-dependent. Beyond my interview with Kristen, I know most of us have seen the news headings. People across the country are protesting for their right to get back to quote-unquote normal life. Though I disagree with these protests, I think I must point out that they are at least rooted in fear in part. As we learned earlier in the semester, capitalist subsistence strategies in industrial societies like ours include alienating one's work from their social essence. What are people supposed to do then when those worlds do begin to collide? As our world requires many people to pick up remote work, the desire to split these spheres gets overruled. The work sphere bleeds into the home. It's possible then that this unfamiliar territory forces people to choose either work or true sociality for the sake of management. 
and Americans, in my experience, are taught to prioritize work. People in the U.S. want their quote-unquote freedom and independence because they've never lived in a country that gives them any reason to believe that community will guide them to safety. This nation depends on our belief in individuality, in fending for ourselves. To do otherwise, then, is to be quote-unquote un-American, to taint, as COVID-19 has, the meaning of American life. And that, I fear, is where many of our troubles lie. I hope addressing this helps each of us do some good, either for ourselves or others. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope wherever you are, that you're staying safe.